Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. of Christian Theology and the Shield of Classic Apologetics. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your host for the next 30 minutes as we seek to take Christian truth into the arena of ideas, yours truly, Brian Chilton. We have a fascinating show for you on tap today, as we'll be talking with uh, Professor of Old Testament, Dr. Gary Yates, uh, who teaches at Liberty University, and we'll, we'll be right back with that uh, interview here right after a brief commercial break. Southern Evangelical Seminary presents The Defense Never Rests at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics coming to Charlotte, North Carolina October 13th through 15th, 2016 Come be equipped to defend the faith This three-day event features over 100 sessions from more than 50 speakers including many of the world's top Christian thinkers such as Lee Strobel, author of many books including The Case for Christ Jay Sekulow, Chief Counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, SES co-founder Norman Geisler, and SES President Richard Land, veteran apologist Josh McDowell, Frank Turek, J. Warner Wallace, SES professors, and many more. Join us for America's largest and longest-running apologetics conference. Thursday is a dedicated day for women only. Register now and save. It's time to get off the sidelines and get into the game. The defense never rests. To learn more, visit ses.edu. Southern Evangelical Seminary, on campus, online, on mission. And that will be coming up here in just a few weeks. Uh, that is uh, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics. Uh, that will be October 14th and 15th. So be sure to mark that on your calendars if you're in the area. Uh, we have some great uh, great speakers lined up, including uh, Liberty University's own Dr. Gary Habermas. He's scheduled to be there as well. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that conference. And today, uh, speaking of great Christian thinkers, we have a phenomenal one with us uh, today. We want to introduce uh, to you Dr. Gary Yates who is a professor of Old Testament at Liberty University. Uh, Dr. Yates received his Bachelor of Arts from Washington Bible College, his THM and PhD, both from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, He, uh, again, teaches professor of Old Testament. He teaches Old Testament Orientation II, uh, which is OBST 520, OBST 660, which is Psalms, and also OBST uh, 664, which is the Pre-Exilic Minor Prophets. Uh, before coming to Liberty University, uh, Dr. Yates pastored churches in Kansas, Virginia, and taught at Cedarville University in Ohio. Uh, Gary and his wife, Marilyn, have three children, two of them graduates at Liberty University. His special interests uh, are in Old Testament studies, 
uh, include the prophets, biblical theology, and the Hebrew language. He's also involved in preaching and teaching in the local church. And I was looking through the publications, and oh my goodness, um, it would take us probably about the duration of the show to list all of the publications that Dr. Yates has had. Has had. Uh, but the latest publication he has uh, is a book that he co-authored uh, with, with Richard Allen Fuhrer, published by uh, Broadman and Holman Publishers, and it is out now called The Message of the Twelve, Listening to the Voices of the Minor Prophets. So it's a privilege to welcome with us today Dr. Gary Yates. Uh, Dr. Yates, thank you so much for being with us on today's podcast. Oh, uh, thank you, Brian. It's my uh, my privilege to be with you today. And like I say, I was looking through. I was just impressed. I knew you had written a lot, but uh, man, I was just overwhelmed looking at how many uh, uh, publications, papers, and presentations that you've done. That's uh, quite quite several quite several wonderful works that you've had there. Uh, quite impressive. Well, I appreciate it, and. Uh, I we're really excited about this new book on the minor prophets. Uh, I had a uh, a class at DTS back in 1986 uh, dealing with the minor prophets and really kind of fell in love with this part of scripture. Uh, both Al and I have had the chance to teach uh, classes in the minor prophets at Liberty uh, for the last several years. So being able to share that with a larger audience, um, we're really excited about that. Absolutely. Dr. Yates, as we often ask our guests, uh, if you would, would you please share with uh, our listeners uh, how you came to receive Christ as your Savior? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I really became a Christian because of the influence of my parents. Uh, they raised me in a Christian home. Um, you know, I think some of the best memories I have of my childhood are just my dad teaching me the scriptures uh, at night with Bible stories, talking about those kinds of things. And I think probably when I was about 10 or 12 years old, uh, finally understood what it meant to, you know, to really become a follower of Christ, uh, that I needed a Savior, that I couldn't save myself, that Christ was the one that had done that for me. And uh, but but the influence of my mom and dad was a huge part of that. Um, I, I know that's probably not as uh, dramatic a conversion story as a lot of people have. But I think, you know, how God brings all of us to Christ is uh, there's a miracle involved in that at some level. And for all of us, there's always something that I think probably stands in the way of us coming to know the Lord. And one of the things that I struggled with, even as a church kid, was just the idea, can you really know, can you really be sure of your salvation? And I, I, you know, I, I remember having just long struggles with that. And I think uh, the Lord just brought me to a process where I realized that it's not the way that I believe or going through some formula. It's simply resting and trusting in what Christ has done for me. And um uh, I've, I've been a Christian now for 40 years and still have a long way to go in my growth, but I'm I'm thankful for that relationship with the Lord that I had in a, you know from an early time in my life. Amen. And I agree with you. I mean, being a uh, a grand preacher's kid, you know, you've heard of PKs. I guess I'm a, a grand preacher's <laughs> kid. <laughs> but you know, I, well, I, I kind of understand. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I. I can't say for myself that I had a real dramatic, uh, you know, episode coming to faith, but I'm with you. I think every story is a miracle in its own right. Uh, now, we, we were talking about, you know, your, your latest book is uh, called The Message of the Twelve, Hearing the Voice of the Minor Prophets. Uh, when we speak of the minor prophet, prophets, excuse me, who are we referencing? 
And what what's the portion of scripture we're referencing when we talk about uh, the minor prophets? Well, we have um, in our English Bibles we have the major prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, but then we have these twelve prophets that uh, are often referred to in you know uh, in, in Jewish studies. The Jews look at this as the book of the twelve because they see these prophets as kind of a unified uh, uh, corpus. Um, there are there are twelve prophets in the in in the minor prophets, and their ministries covered. Um, you know, over three centuries in Israel. So we, we tend to think of this as sort of a tiny, irrelevant, uh, you know, section of the Old Testament, but really a large part of Old Testament history uh, is covered and deals with the ministry of these 12 different men uh, that are that are found uh, in this part of the Bible. Amen. So when we talk about minor prophets, we're not saying that they are minor in relation to the major prophets, you know, because they held a, a huge significance. It, is, is it mainly the the issue of the size of the books? Why they're called the minor prophets? Yes, I think it was uh, Augustine that probably came up uh, that first used that term, the minor prophets. And again, uh, you know, in Jewish literature, you hear them referred to as the Book of the Twelve. But one of the things that we point out in the book, when looking at historical background, minor prophets does not mean insignificant. Um, in Jeremiah chapter twenty-six. When Jeremiah looks back to the time when Hezekiah repented and the city of Jerusalem was spared from the Assyrian army and God you know, sent the angel out in the middle of the night, delivered the, the, the city from, from the Assyrians, it was the preaching of Micah, who's one of these minor prophets, uh, that was viewed as being instrumental in doing that. Uh, when Josiah leads his great reformation and revival, uh, uh, Zephaniah the prophet actually seems to be one of the influences that was leading him in that direction before uh, the book of the law was discovered in like 622 BC. And so Zephaniah was probably one of the influences in that early revival. I, I think most of us know about Jonah, the impact that he had in Nineveh. And then if we fast forward and, and, and went into the post-exilic period, you have Haggai and Zechariah who sort of co-teamed together and they were the ones that after a 20-year period, really encouraged the post-exilic community to finally finish uh, the work of rebuilding the temple. Uh, that was the temple that was standing when Jesus came during his public ministry and the one uh, that was later destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So these are not minor prophets in the sense of insignificance. It just has to do primarily with the size of the books. I didn't realize that Zephaniah, because I knew he lived during the time of Josiah, but I didn't realize he was the one who had the impact on Josiah, so I think that shows the impact and power of these uh, right. what we call minor prophets. Right. Yeah, what, Zephaniah what, is talking about the idolatry problems that the that are going on in Judah before Josiah made the reforms. He's warning that the day of the Lord is coming. So uh, I, I think that's one of the things that Josiah pays attention to uh, in seeing the need to bring these reforms. So I, I think that there's a lesson in there, you know, in and of itself that, you know, the, the preaching the word, you know, preach, you know, being faithful to Christ or being faithful to God, if you keep it in context there, uh, it really, really pays off, really has an impact. Well, there was a lot of history going on, a lot of things taking place uh, during the time of the Minor Prophets. But what were some of the more prominent cultural and historical events taking place uh, during the time of the Minor Prophets? Okay. The prophet, the minor prophets, uh, the first, the first of those, Hosea, Amos, uh, Jonah, are they're they're going to end up 
uh, appearing in the middle of the 8th century. And one of the things that we know about this period in both, you know, Israel and Judah have just experienced a time of really exceptional prosperity. Uh, in the north, you had Jeroboam II, had a long and prosperous reign, extended Israel's borders. Uh, and probably since the division of the two kingdoms, it was the most uh, powerful or the most prosperous time that they had. At the same time, you had uh, Uzziah, who had had a long reign in the south. And because of that stability, there had been uh, a great deal of prosperity. Um, but instead of that being something that led the people to be grateful to God, to honor him, to return to the Lord, uh, they became fixated on their wealth and, and the greed, the social injustice, uh, the mistreatment of the poor, uh, the abuses that went along with what the kings were doing to the people. And you had many people, both in Israel and Judah, who were poor that lived on the absolute margins of society. And so one bad harvest uh, had the potential of uh, or raised the potential of them possibly losing their land. And these people that were wealthy, these people that uh, uh, had had experienced this prosperity, were using that as an opportunity to exploit their neighbors uh, rather than doing what Deuteronomy 15 had talked about. You're always going to have the poor among you, but you also should have no poor among you, because if you share and if you use the resources that God has given you in the right way, you will look out and care for each other. So that was going on. And then uh, very quickly, that prosperity and success and all the things that had happened uh, very quickly disappeared because you had the Assyrian, uh, you had the Assyrian Empire that began to put pressure on the West, uh, that began to take territory, and uh, their armies were invading both Israel and Judah. So that raised a crisis. God was using the Assyrian army to punish his people, to discipline them. Uh, ultimately, the Assyrians are going to take the northern kingdom into captivity in 722 B.C. Then you have the same thing happening to the southern kingdom about 150 years later. Uh, they had not been quite as apostate as the northern kingdom, but the same sins, the same injustices, the same syncretism where they were worshiping other gods. So eventually, Jerusalem is going to fall to the Babylonians in 586. The temple's destroyed. Uh, there's no more Davidic king on the throne from that point forward. And so the, the second wave of minor prophets are going to come during that Babylonian crisis. And then the final uh, stage of the, the ministry of the minor prophets, we're going to have four of these prophets that come during the post-exilic period. They're with the people as they've come back in the land. Uh, you would think in light of all the things that they've experienced that they would have returned to God. But they're back in the land, but their hearts are still not really right with God. So they're warning about more judgment that's coming, um, uh, other issues and problems. And again, Haggai and Zechariah had to encourage the people uh, to get busy building the temple because they had not done that, even though they had been back in the land almost for 20 years. You know, it, it, even as you were describing a lot of the things taking place and the responses that they had, there's so much relevance you know, that you can see for our modern times, you know, as far as applications. I mean, obviously, we need to stay true to the to the context of the Scripture, but there's so many things that we can learn uh, through the minor prophets right. and the things that were going on and the things that were said. Yeah, exactly, because some, uh, I... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, no, that, that's that's fine. That was actually just going to lead us into our next question. 
uh, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt what you were saying there either. Uh, what, what are, are there some major themes that we can find in the Minor Prophets writings, uh, overarching principles that we are overarching themes that we find uh, in the twelve placed right. together? And, and, and I'm sorry, you go yeah, ahead and continue I, your thought. I didn't mean to Sure. I, I think that's one of the things that we wanted to bring out in the book, especially, is that uh, a lot of people, when they think about the prophets, they tend to think exclusively of eschatological issues. And these prophets are dealing primarily with the last days and the end times, and, and they're predicting and prophesying those kinds of things. That element is there. There, there certainly is eschatology in these books, and, and we talk about some that in the book as well. But the major focus of these prophets was not on the end times as much as it was on people, their relationship with God, uh, their relationships with each other, the sins that were in their lives. And in spite of all the you know cultural differences and the time gap between us and them, many of the things that were going on in their society uh, were very similar to the things that we face today. And I would say probably the three major issues that the prophets keep addressing with the people, number one, there was the problem of idolatry and the worship of false gods. Uh, and and there was a, just a great deal of syncretism in both Israel and Judah at this time as they brought in things from the pagan religions, especially Canaanite religion around them. And we might think, uh, you know, looking at this, well, we don't have that problem with idolatry. We don't uh, worship stone gods or bow down to images or have those things in our houses or we don't worship false gods or we don't practice the kind of syncretism that we might see in other parts of the world. But I think the Bible reminds us that, you know, an idol can be anything that we put in our hearts that takes the place of God uh, or that we trust in for security and significance. And even in the New Testament, Paul talks about greed being a form of idolatry. So the issue of idolatry and the ways that that impacts us is very important. Um, then I think a, a couple of other things that are major sort of application issues in the book. The second thing would be, again, the issue of social justice and how we demonstrate our love for God by the way that we demonstrate, uh, by the way that we show that in our love for neighbor, our neighbors, the concern that we have for, for people. And sometimes the church has forgotten about that as part of our mission. And that may be in part because we have neglected sometimes the prophets themselves. And then I think the third issue is, uh, you know, is the problem of false worship that the people were offering God. Uh, and sometimes that involves going through the motions of worship, which we all tend to do, and, and sometimes we we need that to be sort of revitalized. But I think the larger issue was, uh, in the prophets, it's more the idea of going through the motions of worship without applying that to a lifestyle uh, that matches what you confess about God. And and so all of those things, uh, you know, the, the issues that the people were facing in their day with their walk with God are the same things that I'm struggling with in my personal life and the same thing that I think most of the people in our churches are struggling with as well. Well, you know, absolutely. I mean, it's just like reading the front page, you know, of the newspaper, you know, with the things going on, things that are taking place. Um, you know, there's, as, I, as I heard in Bible college one time before, that, that dog will hunt. You know, there's, some, there's definitely a lot of preaching material right there already what you, yeah, what exactly. you said. Well, and, you know, America's not the America's not the chosen people of God the way that Israel is. But I think much of the the fragmenting that we see in our society today, it's the same 
the same basic issues and the same spiritual issues. And I know tonight we're going into a big political debate and everything, but, you know, the primary problems we have as a country are not political, they're spiritual. And, and these books uh, address things both in the church and in society at large that I think are still relevant for today. Oh, absolutely. Well, who are some of your favorite prophets uh, from among the minor prophets? Uh, who are some that you most – maybe your favorite prophet, maybe there's more than one. But who, who are some of your favorites? Yeah, I, mean, I actually haven't been able to narrow that down to one. And I, when you asked me to think about that question, there were three or four. And if I could just real quickly share just a couple of things about each of them that I think uh, are reasons why they would be favorites for me. I think the prophet that kind of embodies what the minor prophets are about and sort of their ethos and their message, uh, Amos, sort of most reminds me of that. Um, and I think partly because, again, this emphasis on justice and the treatment of the poor and the way that your faith has to be demonstrated in the way that you love others, but also just the way that I think he uh, confronted the complacency of the people of Israel. Uh, they believe that God was obligated to bless them no matter what. And so the opening message in that book is the Lord is roaring like a lion from Zion and thundering like a storm from Jerusalem. And that idea of God as a lion, as a bear, uh, as a storm uh, is, is a major message in Amos. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, he says, You only have I chosen of all the people of the earth, and then therefore I will judge you. Uh, and they thought because they were the chosen people that they were exempt from that kind of judgment. And then in chapter 5, he says, Woe to you that are longing for the day of the Lord. They thought the day of the Lord was the time God would come down, judge all of their enemies. The reality is they were going to be the ones that God would judge first. And so I think just the way that he confronts that complacency. Um, another prophet for me that's really stood out is, is the prophet Joel. And I love the way that the first part of the book of Joel up to chapter 2, verse 17, all of it is about this terrible judgment, this locust plague. If the people don't get right with God, there's an army that's coming that's going to make this judgment even more severe. But the prophet says, if you'll gather together, if you'll cry out to God, if you'll plead to him for mercy, if you'll rend your heart, not just your garment, there's the possibility that God will forgive. And when we move from chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 2, verse 18, everything in the book from that point forward is positive because I think the people have repented. They have cried out to God, and God has shown them his mercy. And it says in chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his people and promised them that he was going to restore even the years that the locusts had eaten. So I think just the mercy and grace of God that's there um, I, I also, the book of Jonah is a favorite of mine. Uh, I think partly because of the way that Jonah in the first part of the book rejoices over the way that God delivers him from death when he doesn't deserve it, but then becomes angry when God <laughs> delivers the Ninevites, even though they were not deserving of it as well. And I think it just reminds us of this idea that, um, you know, when we've experienced the mercy of God ourselves, we do not have the right to to, to exclude others from that as well. And I think just the, the literary ways and the humorous ways sometimes that Jeremiah or Jonah is portrayed as maybe the worst possible prophet you could ever imagine. And yet the sailors on the ship are converted. The people of Nineveh repent and respond to his message, even though he preaches this five-word sermon that may be the worst sermon that's ever been preached. 
And I, I think just all those things going on in that book, there's a lot more there than just the fish story. And then um, I think the last book that I would talk about, and probably one of the, the, the ones for me that I got the most out of studying uh, while preparing for the book was the book of Zechariah, just because of the variety that's there. Um, and we were talking before the program with the night visions. And I think in chapters 9 to 14, the way that Zechariah moves beyond the time period that he's looking at and all of this is going to repeat itself. There's going to be more judgment. There's going to be more exile. But ultimately, God's going to pour out a spirit of grace and repentance on his people. There's a heavy emphasis on the coming of Messiah in chapters 9 to 14. And so I think just that future focus and the way that Zechariah uh, has this sort of unique emphasis on the return beyond the return in chapters 9 to 14, uh, I, I think that's kind of a unique part of the book that I've really enjoyed studying. Yeah, like you said, we were talking about that uh, before the program began, and uh, I'm actually in the process of of uh, preaching a series through Zechariah, and I knew it was going to be good because just the fascination I've had with that book already. But the more I've dug into it, I mean, just it's just the more that's there. It's just an enormous amount of wealth in the book of Zechariah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just an incredible book. And you know, speaking of uh, Amos, you know. I, I, Amos is definitely definitely was a bold preacher because uh, didn't he call the uh, some of the ladies in Bashan? I think it was cows. I think he called them. And uh, yeah, he has to be a bold preacher. Re- uh, yeah, absolutely. I haven't gotten to a place where I would do that in any of my preaching, but he does. He refers to the rich woman women there as the fat cows of Bashan, which was kind of the, the place where the best uh, the best and uh, the prime cattle were raised. So that, that's that's an interesting image. And even over in chapter six, when he confronts the rich people again, he talks about them. They're uh, laying on their uh, they're lying on their couches of ivory. They're listening to music. They're drinking wine by the both by the bowlfuls. And he says, "You will be the first ones led away and taken away into exile." And uh, you know, I think the boldness of that, and and sometimes the the need for us as preachers to confront. Uh, just the materialism, not in the society at large, but but especially in the church, and how much that gets in the way of our discipleship. Uh, I think that's been one of the things that uh, the minor prophets have spoken to me about. Amen, amen. And I'm with you. I don't know that I have uh, ever been that bold, or ever would be that bold <laughs> to go that route. Yeah, not sure I'd recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it might, it might not uh, might not have good results in the end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, often, people, often people have have a difficult time identifying with the minor prophets, and uh, I've, you know, some people will think of the minor prophets mainly holding a message of gloom and doom. You know, talking about judgment and whatnot. How are the minor prophets, you know, applicable? And we, we've already mentioned some of this, uh, and maybe we want to take a look at it from the positive side, maybe some of the positive things they have to say. Uh, so, so what are some of the more positive aspects, I guess we could even say, about the minor prophets? And how does one go about interpreting and applying uh, this prophetic genre of Scripture? Because obviously there are different genres, and I think it was whenever I was taking your class in Old Testament at Liberty that I, that I came across this and, and found a great deal of wealth and, and how to interpret the various genres that there are in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me, let me talk about just a couple of the positive things, and then we can kind of uh, then address some of the genre issues. All of these prophets, uh, 
no matter how relentless the message of judgment is, there's always an element of hope and there's always a message of salvation that goes along with it. Uh, and so that that is the positive aspect of this. Uh, also, when uh, the prophets are calling for repentance, uh, typically there is a motivation that goes along with that, that that's very positive. So Amos is probably, of all these books, the most relentless in terms of judgment. At, but at the end of the book, in 9-11 to 15, there's the promise that God's going to restore the fallen tent of, uh, of David. God is going to cause Israel in the future to return to the land, and he's going to bless them with, with this incredible abundance, and the mountains and the hills are going to flow with wine, and they're going to possess the nations and all these kinds of things. So even in Amos, there's a, a positive message at the end of this. And then I think another example of this is in the book of Micah. Uh, Micah chapter 3 talks about Zion is going to be plowed like a field. Uh, even the Temple Mount is going to be reduced to a hill of uh, you know ruins and going to become a desolate, desolate place. But immediately after that, in chapter 4, uh, Zion is going to be lifted up as the highest mountain uh, on all the earth, and the nations are going to stream to Zion, and they're going to worship the Lord. Uh, swords are going to be beaten into plowshares. So you take this devastating message of judgment in chapter 3, it's immediately reversed by the promise that's in chapter 4, and every major section in the book of Micah, uh, there are three major sections in the book, every one of them have a, a positive message that goes from judgment to salvation, and you really see that uh, in all of these prophets. Um, there's a really good book uh, that uh, Brent Sandy wrote on the, the prophets called Plowshares and Pruning Hooks. And he used uh, uh, an illustration there that I think reminds me of what I, what I think of the prophetic message being really like. He said that it's like white, uh, riding on, you know, uh, it's like doing whitewater rafting. Uh, it's the whitewater of salvation at, at times, this incredible blessing beyond anything that you can imagine. But also there's the whitewater of judgment that takes you through some rough spots. And the judgment is going to be absolute and terrible and horrible as well. But but the, the the negative images are offset just as much by the positive images at the end of the message. After the judgment's over, God is not going to abandon or forget his people. And, you know, the book of Hosea, God deals with his unfaithful wife, but ultimately the promise is that he's going to take her back. So I, I definitely think there's there's much there as far as just the positive message of hope. Absolutely. What was the name of that book that you mentioned again? Uh, Plowshares and Pruning Hooks. Plowshares and Pruning Hooks, okay. And uh, speaking of the genre, how is... uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's that's great. And, and partly what he does with that book is just how do we deal with the literature of prophecy and those those kinds of issues and those kinds of things. And I guess that leads into, you know, just talking about some of the basic things about genre. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, dealing with prophecy is no different than dealing with any other part of Scripture. You have to find where the units begin and end, what are the major sections of a book, and, you know, how's the book laid out and structured. And often it's because there is a, a structure where you have judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. Uh, it's important to know the historical background because that's so much what the prophets are talking about. It's important to understand the literary context. And, um, you know, one of the things that we emphasize a lot in dealing with prophetic literature in our classes and hermeneutics and dealing with those kinds of things 
is that you have to understand the poetry and the figures of speech and imagery that are there because the prophets do primarily speak in word pictures and images because they're trying to get people to feel either the horrors of this judgment that's coming, maybe that will motivate people to repent, uh, or they're uh, wanting to instill hope with them by giving them these images of you know, restoration and salvation and those kinds of things. So you do have to deal with uh, the, 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 the figures of speech and the imagery that's there. Uh, it, you, you are going to run into problems sometimes if you try to read all of these things in a very literalistic way. They're not designed to be read that way. And then I think um, probably a couple of more things just with basic rules. Uh, deal with, you know, how is the fulfillment taking place? Are we talking about something that has already happened in history and has already been fulfilled? Or are we talking about a fulfillment that is still going to happen in the future? Sometimes the New Testament is what helps us with this. But most of the time when the prophets are predicting certain things that are going to happen, most of those things have already taken place in history. So in a lot of instances, when they're talking about the day of the Lord is coming, they're talking about the the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Uh, And so it's helpful at times to know, are we talking about something that has been fulfilled or something that will be fulfilled? How does the New Testament help us with this? And, um, you know, then kind of a final thing with their message is this is this passage. Is it a prediction or is it more? the prophet preaching about uh, issues and things that need to happen in the people's lives? Are they foretelling and simply preaching the word of God, or are they foretelling and making predictions about certain things? And most of their preaching is actually foretelling, not foretelling. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and there again, like you said, you know, you can draw several principles, seeing with how they dealt with issues in their time as to how we can deal with things in ours. And, and so, you know, as you say, I mean, that makes these prophets very applicable in, in many ways. Now, uh, finally, we we have about, looks like about five, ten minutes left, about five minutes left, I believe. But you and Al, uh, Dr. Fuhrer, had co-authored the book, The Message of the Twelve. Uh, what can one expect to find in your latest your latest work? Okay. Well, what we did, we have four chapters uh, at the beginning of the book that, that, that introduce, introduce the context of the minor prophets. And so the first chapter deals with uh, the historical context, what was going on in this three and a half centuries when the, the prophets were ministering. The second and the third chapters deal with some of the, the things that we just talked about, the hermeneutics of how to interpret the prophets. Uh, Al has a really good chapter on uh, prophetic genres, like judgment speeches, calls to repentance. And that's another part of the interpretive process and and just walks through examples of each of those things. There's very practical examples there. The fourth chapter, uh, we look at how do we read these books as more of a canonical unity. There's a sense in which we have 12 books, and that's the primary way that we read them. But I think there are also things that tie them together and bring them together as a unity, like the calls for repentance or the days of the Lord. So we deal with those things in the first four chapters, and then what we do with each subsequent chapter is there's a, a short introduction, uh, an exposition that goes chapter by chapter through each of the prophetic books, and then at the end, we have a section on uh, theological reflection and application that tries to tie it into either the New Testament uh, or to uh, prompt some ideas uh, about you know what you might want to talk about in preaching, and I know... Uh, there was a, a short blurb about the book in 
Preaching Magazine just a, a couple of weeks ago when it first came out and said, this is the kind of book that possibly could prompt some sermon theory. And I think that would definitely be uh, a major goal for us is that this would encourage pastors, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders to get into these books and teach them because there is a lot of relevant practical application. We try to help you in uh, the exposition sections uh, to do that a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and being a pastor who has, uh, as we were mentioning before, going through just just one of these uh, 12 minor prophets, and it's just there's just been so much wealth to the material that's available. And, you know, as you said, if you were to go through Amos and, and go through several of these uh, minor prophets, it would be just like, you know, many of the events that, that's taking place today. So um, there's definitely material there, good material, inspired material uh, to use for, for sermon series. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think just just two quick things. Um, if anyone's interested in seeing uh, more uh, of how we might do exposition of some of these passages, uh, I actually have some videos online that are free and accessible, and the link to those is at biblical uh, biblicalelearning.org, and there are 30, 30 lessons on the minor prophets there, and you can watch those. Uh, Dr. Furr has uh, some some messages and lessons there on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's even transcripts of the lessons if you want to read them rather than just watch them. So I, I just want to let people know about that resource. And then the other thing is, um, I think the book is written primarily, uh, it's written for students, uh, it's written for pastors, it's written for Sunday school teachers, it's written for lay people that want to uh, uh, to get into these books, it, it, you know, it's written more as kind of an introductory textbook, maybe for a college or seminary class. But we're also trying to help people see some of the things in the Hebrew language or things that maybe aren't covered in general Bible surveys um, that that this book is trying to give people access to. So that's kind of the audience that we've uh, that we've designed this for. Absolutely. So that link again is biblicalelearning.org. Yeah, and, biblical uh, biblical e learning dot and that's all one word. Uh and if if people are just interested in seeing some messages and lessons and how we would teach through uh these individual books, there's uh, you know, there there's there's that resource as well. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Yates, we certainly want to thank you for being with us today on the podcast. We will again want to encourage people, uh go over to biblicalelearning.org and also pick up the copy of The Message of the Twelve, Hearing the Voice of the Minor Prophets uh, with Dr. Gary Yates and Dr. Fuhrer. Again, Dr. Yates, we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on today's podcast. And we just want to tell everybody to uh, just thank you for listening today. And uh, we want to just tell you just to remember that the truth shall set you free. And we just encourage you to uh, dig into the minor prophets today uh, to, to learn their message and to apply them to your lives. Well, for Dr. Gary Yates, this is Brian Chilton saying God bless, and we'll see you back next time right here on the Bell Talk. Whether you're up all night or up with the sun, whether you're a weekend warrior or an everyday hero, whether you hail from homeschool or old school, whether you're hands-free or hands-on, wherever you come from, wherever you're going, and for everything in between, 
Liberty University is the place for you. The nation's largest private nonprofit online educator.